Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 19, Syndicating Multifamily Deals. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today our guest, Reed Goosens, is a syndicator with Wildhorn Capital. He shares his experience in building a portfolio of 2,000 units in eight years through syndications. Today, we have Reed Goosens, who's the managing partner at Wildhorn Capital, uh, he started investing eight years ago and has amassed just under 2,000 units. Reed, welcome on. Thanks, lads, for having me on the show. Awesome to be here. Yeah, likewise, man. Uh, would you mind giving us, our audience, uh, a background on yourself and how you got to the States and investing? Yeah, well, the quick, uh, the quick cliff notes. Um, moved here in, <clears throat> excuse me, at the beginning of 2012. And uh, the reason I moved here was to really just live as an expat in New York City. I, I sort of backpacked through New York City back in, in early, earlier, sort of back in 2009. Um, and during that sort of backpacking time, I was backpacking through Europe, was backpacking through the States, met my then girlfriend, now wife, Erica, who's American. And she subsequently moved out to Australia in 2011 to continue her studies and did a master's degree. And at the end of 2011, I was like, hey, let's, let's just go live in New York City for a period of time. Your, your, your university's running up, your visa's running up. There's a cool visa for Australians to come to the United States. I've got a structural engineering degree. Like it's, you know, I, I definitely, have, it's a needed, you know, skill. And so, yeah, we just, I just quit my job and just moved over here. More to do with just to live here in the States and just to say tick, you know, lived as an expat and experienced New York City. And, you know, I didn't really have any hopes or desires to go on to do what, I have done, but I guess the thing was for me, it was more to do with the, the element of the fear of regret, right? Like not waking up when I'm 70 years of age and going, geez, I wish I had moved to New York City. Um, because the worst case scenario for me would have been, I didn't get a job. I'd move back to Australia, move back to my family. You know, like that, that was it. And I was comfortable with that. And least even if I failed, I would have had a go at it and, and I would be satisfied with that. So that's the sort of premise of the moving to the United States. And then when I got here, it was the, they can say the rest is history, but it's not really. But, you know, that was sort of then, then the ball really started to get rolling and, and, and really I got to start to flap my wings. So, yeah. So you came to the U.S. and like, did you end up finding a job or did you just jump into the real estate side? And what did that no, look like? I, I, so to, to, to be here, I had to have a job, right? So yeah. that was the whole, the whole premise. And again, remember, I, I'd, had, I'd already picked up the book Richard Poor had probably two years prior to moving to the United States was doing some education in Australia, was going to do a flip or some lease option, something in Aussie, um, but really wanted to move, be, a, be an expat and move abroad again. The money I had saved up to do something in Australia, I pretty much spent half of it moving here. And, and then, so to your, back to your point, I had to find a job here. I had to, my, the only reason I could be in the country was through the, the E3 visa, which meant that I had to have an, uh, an employer or employment in my field of study, which was structural engineering. So I remember you know printing like going on google and trying to find all the engineering joints in new york city and and it literally is walking in just walking in walking in walking in walking in walking in walking in until someone said sure and for me it was it was really trying to aim to be less than 40 or 50 employees because if you had less than 40 or 50 employees you wouldn't have gatekeepers or hr and and hr would be oh we went to university in australia now in the trash you know another another resume in the trash so <laughs> For me, it was trying to just be a little different. And, and actually through playing rugby in New York City, I got, I got a, a, a little job as a, a, what I call an AutoCAD uh, jockey, you know, doing d drawings. And that was sort of got me started. And then I interviewed for a structural engineering firm 
And the guy happened to be from, from Russia, you know, living in the States for 50 years and all the employees were expats. And I was like, oh, it's not that, it's not that weird after all, you know? And so I got that job and then it's it, that, that sort of, that was the first thing. And then we had to get an apartment and, you know, all that good stuff. So, so yeah. That's awesome, man. So what did your first plunge, obviously you're involved in real estate as a structural engineer. Uh, what did your first plunge into the investment side look like? How did that evolve? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, like when I picked up the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, and just for all those people out there, you know, spent 2008, 2009, already traveling around the world. I moved to London and spent some time in London working on the 2012 Olympic Games, the development of all that infrastructure in, in preparation for 2012. 2009, went to Europe, backpacked, met Erica, 2010, back in Australia. And that was really when I was like, oh gosh, I'm sitting in this cubicle again. Like this can't be, this can't be it. Right. And, and that was really when I stumbled across the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because I knew I didn't want to live in a cubicle for the next 40 years of my life. So you ask when the first sort of step, well, that was the, 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 the sort of the spark and, and then starting to go and self-educate, attend local meetup events in Brisbane, my hometown. Um, but then when I moved to the United States, I think with, with being like fresh off the boat for like two weeks, I was at my first RIA, the Real Estate Investment Associations. Uh, and I just knew like coming to America and, and for all those people listening to this, like you don't realize how much incredible infrastructure, or not infrastructure, but incredible um, networks and communities and access to information that, that you have here in the United States. And the RIAs are an example of that. Um, you know, every MSA across the United States has one, right? They don't have that in Australia. Like just coincidentally, the only big meetup for real estate was in my hometown, right? So coming to the United States and coming to New York City, you know, the Big Apple, it was like taking information out of a fire hose, but it was just such an eye-opening experience. Like, wow, there's so much incredible content and information I could absorb by paying 20 or 30 bucks at the door. So that was sort of the start and going to those events helped me meet other people and, you know, help me see that the barriers to the, end, to, the, to the investment market, particularly in sort of secondary and tertiary markets here in the United States, were a lot lower than what I was compared to back home. So, so that was the start of mm. the, 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 plant, uh, the seed had already been planted back in Australia. And I knew I, once I got here and then once all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is just this world opened up of networking and information that I was like, okay, I'm going to do something here. So, yeah. That's awesome, man. So you just jumped straight in and started getting involved in local community. I definitely feel like that's an untapped resource, even amongst like the American investors. Yeah, hundred percent. No, it's, they'll it's such stay a, home and they analyze deals <laughs> like they're nine thousandth deal, and they won't go to a RIA meeting and talk to real people <laughs> who've done deals and like learn. <laughs> well, look, I, and, and I'll add that I, I I remember going to these RIA events and then picking up these books that were again readily available um, to people online and. And, and, and learning how to analyze small multifamily. And then the, the next step was like, okay, where can I buy, right? And I couldn't afford yeah. New York City um, because being fresh off the boat, I was also, um, you know, the banks wouldn't even lend to me. I didn't even know what a credit score was. So trying, right. to, trying to sort of find, you know, and all of a sudden someone's like, hey, have you heard of these secondary and tertiary markets that are sort of four or five hours drive from New York City? I remember going on a bus tour to Baltimore. I remember going to Philly. And I remember, you know, then when we, I went up to Syracuse and that's ultimately where I bought my first property. But it was just like, wow, these secondary markets can exist and you can buy something for less than $50,000. Like that's, that's nuts. You know, like it's exactly what Richard Portad said, you know, buy an asset and it will cash flow. Um, but being a fresh faced, bushy eyed Australian, not understanding, you know, what a section D or class section eight housing class D sort of, you know, neighborhoods are. I, 
I got a, a pretty good lesson in, in, in uh, buying those cheaper properties and the reason they're cheaper is because for a reason. So, but it got me going, right? And, and the first property I think I'd purchased was within six months of moving to the United States, uh, all cash with, with my own money for $38,000. So, yeah. Yeah, talk to us about that, those first couple of properties that were like, sounds like D-class, Section 8 apartments or houses. Yep. Talk to us about that experience or kind of like lessons you learned going down that path. Yeah, so the, I think the major lessons I learned that on paper, these things are great. And a lot of Australians, remember at the time, the Australian dollar and a lot of international folks were buying these turnkey properties and, and they can, you can do it really, really well with them. But I think the, the, the major thing I learned was scale, right? Going and buying one for $38,000 and having, you know, my property manager like, why haven't you put a decent tenant in there? You know, like he's probably got 500 of these little things and like I wasn't demanding enough attention you know so for the first six months the property went great it was all per plan cash flowing about seven eight hundred bucks a month um but then tenants started to clash there was a drive-by shooting it was a whole thing like it was just it was just a, it was just a lesson man it was, I, I can't say that i don't regret any of it i'll do it in a heartbeat again because it was my money i was ri- going to risk my own money and that was i was, ha- I, was I was comfortable with that like if it didn't work out it was my own money. It was no one else's. And I was, I would rather do that than continuing to spend. You talk about analysis paralysis, about analyzing deals at home and not getting to near uh, rear events. I would felt the same way because at that point, like I was about two and a half years of self-education. I was like, I've got to do something here. I remember, I vividly remember standing on the subway, going to work and going, I've got to just get, the, I've got to dive in the deep end. You know, I just got to do this. Like, this enough pissing about, you know, like, get going, you know? So yeah. you don't, you don't get a deal number 10 without doing that first deal. And that's the, and everyone else says, what's your best deal? I was like, it's my first one because I got going, right? It's that, the, the permission you give yourself to, you know, say I can do this. Right. And then from there, it's just that, that snowball then starts to build and confidence starts to build. And that's ultimately where we've come to today. So, yeah. That's awesome. I can agree more like that first deal is the most important one. Even if you break even, 100%. like oh, it doesn't matter. It's just I, I think I did. I think I did break even, <laughs> but, 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 but the thing was, it got me into deal number two, right? So the first deal got me, I bought it all cash and I put some money into it. Uh, I think 10 or 12 grand. So I was in for about 50 K and then I got a line of credit for 25,000 and that got me by my second deal, which was a duplex for $45,000. And then that deal got me into, or well, that little cluster of two properties was healthy collateral for a flip deal. I did in Philly. So it got me going, right? That was the whole point of, it was my, my money. It was my deals. Um, and then through some conversations with some friends started to realize that syndication. And that's, that's sort of the next, the next chapter in the story. Yeah. So that's how that progressed was just your, you talking to your buddies and then doing some deals and then it, it turned into a syndication from there. Well, yeah, yeah, just like that, right? Boom. Simply, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it was actually through a conversation. I think I'm pretty sure it was Christmas 2013. Uh, a very good buddy of mine came down from Canada. We'd studied civil engineering in Australia together, and I'm sitting there talking to him. And I'm like, "Oh, you know, I've got these two properties in upstate New York, and I've got this flip deal, and I'm doing, you know, like sort of boasting a little bit." And he just said to me, "Oh, that's that's fantastic." And I said, and, and then he goes on to say, oh, "I just closed on a 70-unit deal," and I said, "What?" Do you, 70 you mean seven zero how the hell did you do that like and then he went through to explain about his mentor about you know how he got a seller caravac financing on the purchase he, he was able to raise a little bit of money from friends and family and i was like i'd heard all these things and he was doing the same business plan which was going in spending a bit of money on each unit and trying to increase the rent except he was doing it over scale and i was doing it on 
duplexes and triplexes, you know, and, and it, you know, the banks don't, as we all know, they don't class it as a business because it's less than four units, right? So it wasn't really moving the needle. And, and again, at that stage in my life, it was sort of like, well, I've already come this far. I've already started, I've moved, went, moved my whole life to America. I've got a job, started investing. All that hard stuff's done. Now it's like, let's, this, this, this ball's already rolling. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's up the game. And, and, and guys, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier about the, the, the mentorship stuff. I chose not to you know, spend my money. I could have gone and doubled down and got a $60,000 Robert Kiyosaki course and continue to spend my money on education. But I felt like I'd, I needed that first deal and spend the money on the first deal as the education. But I realized after doing those two or three deals, four deals, I was getting to the point where I was getting to the end of my tether in terms of my rope on, on lending. And I just knew that in the back of my mind, I needed that, that mentor. And that's, you know, my, my buddy, Scott from Canada, he, he was like, it was a, it was a godsend that he got his mentor because it gave him the ability to have a sounding board to then go off and, do bigger and better deals. And thus then I ended up selling both those little properties in Syracuse to free up some cash, to go spend it on the business, to spend it on myself, to go get the education, to say, Hey, I want to take my, this career to the next level. Cause again, I was still working full time as a structural engineer. I hadn't got to financial freedom by any means. It was, it was about, let's take that next step in, in my career. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like uh, a lot of investors, including myself, like I've, do duplexes, quadplexes, houses, but I just don't have the scale um, that you get from moving, you know, 50, 100, 200 plus units at a time. Because adding, it's not that much more difficult to do 100 units than it is to do like five different houses. Yeah, 100%. It's just, it's just the, the amount of zeros on the end of it or whatever you want yeah. to call it. And, it's, and, and again, it's all down to mentality, right? It's the mindset. Can you do this? Do you have the people in your network to go and raise half a million bucks or a million dollars from? Uh, to go and buy that 50 unit property rather than buying five $100,000 properties, right? So it, it, all, it is all about pushing your boundaries and getting comfortable pushing those boundaries. And, and, and that's what hopefully people out of the, you know, listening to this show, that's all I can employ you to do. If you take anything away from this episode is like, just get good at pushing your boundaries. And it can start with as simple as going to meet up events because you're scared of networking, push your boundaries. If you're doing it each and every day, there's little incremental shifts over a period of three, four, five years, you'll see how far you've got. And, and, and again, by doing those little, you know, by buying the first property, by getting the mentor, by pushing yourself to do a podcast, all those little things start to move the boundary outwards and you get comfortable being uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you're, uh, did you use your buddy as your mentor or who did you? No, I, I, I actually went after uh, very early on my, uh, I'm sure you, you know of him, is Joe Fairless. He was, uh, he was really early on and in in, like, I paid him. I don't even want to tell you what I paid him because I know he's a lot more expensive today, but I always think it was like his second or third student. Um, he'd only done one deal at the time, but um, it was just more, it was more to do with, I was being, wanting to be frugal, but I wanted to get someone who was, you know, I, I think he's a few years older than me, but he's like my age, he's younger. You know, he was doing stuff. He, he had a drive that I sort of resonated with. And that's all, it, that's all I needed, right? I needed that sounding board. And then the money that I spent, which I think was like two and a half grand, it wasn't a lot, but <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was more the fact that I was inv- saying, hey, this is the check I'm investing in myself. Reed, you, you need to take this seriously. And, and you need to listen to, you know, this is, this is you opening the next door to take your career to the next level. And that was, that was all it was. So investing in myself. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to ask him, and I'm sure our listeners can ask for that Reed Goose and two, <laughs> two and a half grand discount. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, that's awesome. So, like, you got him as your mentor and started looking at like larger deals. Did you have any, how did you figure out like what state you want to invest in? What size deals? Like, how did you go along? Yeah, that path? Like, so in that, in the shift, in that transition of getting Joe and then I also then made the shift to, to, to um, LA because uh, my wife is from LA at that point. And, and I was still working as a structural engineer, but then this is the next really pivotal moment in my career because I had a skill set that was valuable to someone. And if I said, I'm going to have to be working in the corporate job world for the next three, four, five years, I'm not at a stage where I can just go off and do real estate full time. But I said, well, why can't I learn and still be in real estate 24 seven? And that's where I reached out to a bunch of developers here in LA. And I ended up getting a job because I had a skill set of value. And I became a, a pretty much a project manager and owner's rep for about three and a half, four years building high end multifamily in Long Beach, California, working for a company called Ensemble Real Estate Investments, you know, Cam Baboff and, and the guys over there. You know, he's, an, he's an expat like myself, originally from Iran. He owns half of Beverly Hills. You've never even heard of the bloke. You know what I mean? Like, and I went and I was in, you know, the bullpen of that firm for four years, combined with obviously, you know, the, the, the Joe thing helped get it started, but that was the sort of next step of like, I need to, be surrounded 24-7 by real estate. And if I can get a job working with the big boys, then that's only going to keep growing my, my prowess, my, my, my confidence. Um, and, and I had a skill set, again, that, that was valuable to this developer. It wasn't just like, hey, give me a job. It's like, no, I was a structural engineer. I knew how to build stuff, right? I knew how to design stuff. So um, because I knew I, just, I was sick of engineering. I, mean, I still remember going to site. Uh, when I first came to LA and I had like for about three or four months, I had a little, I had a job with an engineering firm and I just felt like a complete ugly duckling at this firm. There's a lot of smart engineers and I was like, I'm done. I'm so, this is like just started with Joe. I've started building the podcast. I was like, I'm done with engineering. I do not care how many bolts are in that connection. I want to know how much you're, I want to know how much you're renting this for, you know? So, so I, I guess you probably weren't, uh, I don't want to buy anything that you worked on in that time frame. It doesn't sound like it was probably put together too. Well. Nah, mate, trust me, it was all good. If you ever come to LA, there's a thing called the block in downtown LA, which was uh, one of the big projects I was working on. And it just, it's funny as you grow, the, the, the developers, that I met there have now seen what I've done obviously with Ensemble and then seen what I've grown on, gone to do with my own stuff. And it just, it, it, it all comes, it's a, it's a small world, you know, when you start, you know, flapping your wings a little bit and everyone can start seeing it. So it's, it was nice. I, I had, a, I bumped into someone the other day or about six months ago and I was like, you know, he was one of the head developers at the block that I was like idolizing at the time. I was this sort of a consultant structural engineer. I was like, I want to be you someday. And, um, and I just remember bumping into him. He's like, man, I've seen what you're doing on LinkedIn. Like, great. It's fantastic. And how'd you get the confidence? I was like, you know, looking at people like yourself, mate, looking at, you know, other, you know, other, other people who are out there doing it and just, just saying, I'm going to be either you or equivalent of you at some point in the future. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a great, uh, motivation or tool to use to get somewhere. Um, right. So are you, you're in LA still, I'm assuming? In LA still. Yep, that's correct. Um, I, I go down to Austin. I was in Austin last week. As we're growing the company, we're at, we're at 2,000 units now. Um, we want to double that in the next two to three years. We're bringing on some full-time employees. I'm actually more the head of operations, you know, CEO, COO type of role. 
Um, but, you know, I, I will have to move to Austin at some stage in the future if we're going to start bringing, you know, property management in-house or, or, or wanting to scale. We're looking at a couple of actually ground-up construction deals right now, you know, as we grow with our prowess and multifamily, you know, buying existing multifamily will always be our core thesis. Um, but we're also very opportunistic and wanting to look at other things that we can add value to uh, in order to, it's not just putting lipstick on a pig anymore. It's, it's, it's about going and looking at what's the highest and best use and entitlements, going and looking at like, what can we actually build on this, this site? Um, can we entitle it and sell it to a developer? Or can we entitle it and we do it? Um, so we've picked up a, a deal in an opportunity zone and there's a, there's a six, four acres behind it that we know the, the seller or the owner on that six acres and it's completely landlocked now and they can only get through our property to get to the, to the street and we're like, we're going to go and offer him hopefully cents on the dollar and uh, try and uh, try and build on that in the future. So just little stuff like that we're trying to look at, which is more opportunistic. We're looking at some hotel conversions for low income housing to get tax credits. You know, we're, we're very focused on Austin right now and, and we think that, you know, our thesis is that it's going to continue to grow where the jobs are going and, and we'd rather be an inch wide and a mile deep in one market than try to be scattered to too broadly over six or seven markets because we just, we won't, you know, we're getting off market opportunities because we've stuck around the hoop so long in Austin and because we've done so many deals. So um, that's, that's really where, what, what we're doing, what the focus is for now with Wildhorn moving into um, 20, 2020 and beyond. So you guys that's are great. mainly focused in Austin and that's the market. Okay. We started in San Antonio and we've got a thousand units in San Antonio, but we, um, we, we're focusing more now in Austin, just given the growth uh, given the the transition that that city has gone yeah. through from a sort of secondary market into really a, a coastal market, I know CBRE definitely classifies Austin as a as a coastal market. The the news that Tesla's moving down there and Apple, you know, all the big tech companies, and you know, there's there's twice or three times a week direct flights to London Heathrow Airport from Austin. So there's all these things that are it's really on the world stage, and and that's what we like to see. Yeah, some big podcasters have moved down there. Yes, some very influenced. Probably, what is it? Uh, Mr. Mr. Ferris has, was the first yeah. one. And, and, and then what's the other guy's name? Rogan? Um, yeah. Joe Rogan. So, yeah. How are you guys uh, finding deals? Still through, uh, just again, our network. There's, look, there, there's a lot to be said for hanging around the hoop. You know, being in a, in a town, in a city, knowing all the brokers really well. And that's what Andrew does extremely well, which is my business partner. He is the guy that goes and shakes the lemon tree, right? And I determine if we make lemonade or lemon juice out of it, right? And so that's, he, he, he's born and bred Austin. He's very well connected. The other thing is, you know, most markets, even here in LA, you know, it's, once you start doing deals and you know who the big players are, it's pretty, it's pretty small world. You know, everyone seems to know everyone. Everyone's either gone to high school or university or they, just, they know someone or someone. So over, over a period of time you, you, and you do deals in your, your, your class as a performer, that is when brokers take you seriously. And that's when, you know, out of the nine deals we've got now, I think three or four of them have come off market or just before they've hit market. So it's, it's, again, it's just all about being around the hoop and, 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 and waiting for your opportunity to, um, to, to take a basket. So, yeah. Do you have any advice for investors who are trying to get their first deal in a market in multifamily? Because it's like that first one seems to be the hardest. 100%. The, the, the power of the first one is, is the hardest. Um, look, there's no silver bullet at the end of the day. There really isn't. And people want a silver bullet because everyone's expecting it to happen like that, right? And so for, for, for people who are going out and wanting to be um, active in a market, it's literally about 
you know, and this goes back to location and who, you know, it is probably better to have either be boots on the ground or have a partner who is boots on the ground. So you can constantly network with those brokers, you know, take them out to lunch, take them out to golf, take them out to whatever. And it just over six, 12, 24 months, it, something will drop and some, some crumb will, will roll off the table and you'll be able to get it. It's not the answer probably everyone wants to hear, but that's how we've done it. And we just, we just kept hanging around the hoop, kept hanging around the hoop. And it, over a period of time, you build that relationship with people. And that's where, you know, right now, brokers have the king, uh, keys to the kingdom. Uh, you know, unless you're in that sort of smaller multifamily where you do sort of maybe some yellow letters and mum and pop type of investors. But, but I think still in that, in that case, you want to be networking your ass off to try and find every single opportunity that comes to market. And you should be aware of every opportunity that comes to market because you would have a relationship with all the brokers in your market. So, yeah. Right. What, what's kind of the criteria that y'all are looking for in your, um, your current deals, like size-wise? And obviously, yes. we know the location. We're anywhere between 15 to $45 million in acquisition price. Like you, you talk about before, doing a $45 million deal is just as much work as doing a $15 million deal. So absolutely. Um, so that can you pretty we're pretty much talking in the 200 to 250 range, but now they're starting to get better quality assets, um, newer build construction. We're, we're probably not going to look anymore at 1980s stuff much much more because of the that's now coming up to 30 years old. <laughs> so the engineer in me is like, look, let's start looking at the 90s build. We picked up a, a, an early 2000 build um, a, a year and a half ago in Austin, and it's just it just performs so much better from a you know, uh, from all the major maintenance, maintenance yeah. so that the, the, the individual hot water systems, the HVACs, the roofs, you know, all that sort of stuff. It just, it performs better. It's got nine foot ceilings. So, you know, you can do a really beautiful renovation and it feels like a brand new apartment. You know what I mean? So yeah. those things matter when you, 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 you get, you get to scale. Um, because, you know, <laughs> hearing that, you know, it's been really hot in Austin and I've got one asset that's a 1980s asset and they spent, Fifteen thousand dollars in HVAC repairs this month, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, <laughs> there goes the cash flow for the month. You know what I mean? Like, it just and you can't time it. You just it just they're, they're the skeletons in the closet on older assets, and that's that's what you're getting into, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a double. Uh, I mean, there's it's it's great on the on the two thousand asset because you're not only probably getting a higher rent obviously than some of the other older units but like you said you've got a lot less maintenance so correct and and, and those sort of value add class c assets or class b minus they're trading at a lower cap rate than you could get a, a newer deal which still has value add on it you know what i mean like it just yeah. because it just the, the perception and that's where the market sort of about a year two years ago started to turn that way and it's like oh that doesn't make any sense from a from a from a if you're really going to hold it for a long period of time, you know, seven to 10 years, which is really what we're underwriting to these days, you want to make sure that you, you have a, a decent, the systems in your asset are decent. Um, so, you know, boilers, we really stick clear, steer clear of and, and, or understand the risk um, and, and really make sure, cause it all, it's all a function of money, right? So make sure you have enough reserves and, and capital, uh, capex, uh, capital expenditure uh, reserves and to, to cover these, you know, bogeys that, that jump up every now and then. That's probably a good time to kind of do two things, kind of plug, you know, your company and then kind of walk folks through how you make it happen. Like, so on your syndication deals, how do you structure those so that, you know, not only you get the proper investments to purchase the deal, but also have the capital aside for expenditures? 
Yeah, so we structure it in a way that uh, I think we were the first people syndicated to bring this to market. I know Joe and Frank at, at Ashcroft now do it, and I know a lot of other firms do it. It's, so we, we do a 70-30 split on uh, LPGP, but of the LP, we have 25% of the equity is, um, is what's called Class A equity, and that's a 10% PREF paid current. Um, and, and the reason we do that is because as deals start, it's harder to cash flow. You can pay 10% on 25% of the equity with, with, a, with a deal that's cash flowing 2% out of the gate, right? So as cash flow out of the gate starts to get lower, investors want that cash flow, that 10% pref, um, they want that more and more. But then, they, then those Class A investors don't get any of the upside. Uh, Class B investors have a 7% accruing a pref, um, but they get 70% of the upside once we sell. So we have a sort of a, an option, option A and option B for people to invest mm. money in either or, and they can have a blended one, they can have a bit of A, a bit of B, but it also gives them options and, and a choice uh, whether they want the cash flow or they want the equity multiple over a long period of time. And, and that's really our reaction to the market as deals started to get thin. You know, to, to, to pay 8% on 70% of, of, um, of the deal on, on 100% of your equity is, is really tough these days. You know, that's why we had to break it up into class A and class B. So, yeah. Interesting. So what, what do you, like, I've seen a couple of guys do syndications where they don't always allow for enough aside to handle larger capital expenditures. How do you maintain that and make sure that doesn't happen to you? So, well, two things. We, um, we typically like to get low leverage debt. So we'll get between 60 to 70% debt on the purchase and we'll raise all the CapEx dollars ourselves from equity. Now, that, that reduces the IRR to, to investors in terms of return. Like I could go get more leverage on it, but the thing is we're then in control of it. Um, and, and like right now, you know, COVID, we've had to pause all our renovations because we're giving away concessions and we're trying to just, you know, ride the ship out through COVID. Um, and it means that we do have dollars on our, hand, on our side of the, the fence that we can, those gotchas, you know, oh, you forgot to account for, you know, half a roof or, you know, 15 HVACs go out in one month. So that's really how we, um, we, we account for it is that we, we will over raise money to c- account for the capital expenditure. Right. Perfect. Like, if you're open to sharing, like how much do you over raise? And I'm asking is like, what should other people kind of over plan well, for? So there's, there's just the, uh, there's just the experience of knowing what things yeah. cost. Right. So, we, we, we break it in, I break it into three buckets. And this again comes from my experience of being a construction manager in the, in the, in the struck, ground up development world is, okay, what's the major infrastructure stuff we've got to deal with? Your major elements of the building, HVAC, roof, foundations, siding, um, electrical and plumbing, right? So they, they're not going to move the needle, but they're things that need to be addressed. So that's one bucket. So you need to go through and make sure you understand what the property needs. Um, the second bucket is exterior you know, we'll sexify it. You know, we'll, we'll go and put in amenities. We'll go and put in dog parks and people parks and update the leasing center and really have that sort of mindset when, when, a, when a prospective tenant crosses the, the, the property line that they're driving up to the leasing center. They're in the leasing center. They're already wowed by the design. And before they've even seen a unit, they're like subconsciously saying, I want to live here, right? So there's that. And then we talk about the interior renovations, which we take, we class in terms of bronze, silver, and gold upgrades. Um, Typically, we, we implement on a 1980s, 1990s assets. We'll do silver. Uh, you know, 50% of the units will be silver. We will test some gold units uh, sort of 12 months into ownership. Um, but the, uh, 
but but and then bronze will leave you know as sort of the classics for sort of giving people options uh, who who want to you know a lower cost uh, housing. Um, so all those three different buckets, you have to make sure that you've got enough contingency and you understand what each line item is going to cost. And that doesn't happen overnight, right? It, take, it takes experience and years of experience to do that. But when you're working with good contractors, you can, you know, you, I, I know that I pay $5 a square foot on siding replacement if I need to replace siding. Now, I don't replace siding across the entire property. I replace siding along the tool path, right? You know, the property, the building at the back of the property, building 16, <laughs> I ain't replacing its siding right in a second. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, so you've got to be strategic in where you put your money. Um, yeah. And, and so like things, you know, the other things we do is like, uh, you know, we'll paint the doors and we'll paint the trim, right? So that gives it right. just an instant pop. We'll redo the monument sign. We'll redo landscaping. You know, we'll do the pool up and we'll do the, the, the amenities up and make sure we have strong amenities. And that there, it, it's money, you know, it can be cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars, but it's really money well spent. Like you could go and spend another million dollars just doing all the siding, but does that really move the needle? And you've got to ask yourself what is needed today and what is needed maybe we can defer mm. it for, for a couple of years' time. That's some great advice on upgrading the amenities, especially when you have scale where you can afford to and it has that impact. Right. What Do you have any advice on or lessons you've learned on actual the interior rehabs on what has added the most value in that like bronze, silver, gold, like what you guys have learned there? Silver, silver and gold, like the difference between silver and gold is like, so we go in on a silver, we'll do two-tone paint, you know, with a grey, white type of, you know, paint scheme, uh, new flooring throughout. We'll paint the cabinets. We won't replace them. Uh, new door handles, new lights. We'll probably resurface the counters, put in a new plumbing fixtures um, and, and, and put in black appliances. The difference between that and gold is that the gold will have probably new, new ca cabinet faces. It'll have granite countertops. It'll have undermount sinks. It'll have gooseneck faucets and it'll have USB outlets and nest thermostats. So that's a, now that's going to cost you an extra probably four to five thousand dollars more. Oh, sorry, and still and stainless steel um, appliances. Um, yeah. So we'll, we we spend typically fifty five to sixty five hundred dollars on a silver package. We spend probably eighty five to eleven thousand dollars depending on the unit on on a gold or a platinum. Um, it also depends on the demographic, right? Like I'm not installing granite countertops in San Antonio, but I'm installing granite countertops in Austin because the market demands it. So all these different things you have to assess what is right. The other thing that you don't know is, um, is when you lift up the, 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 the flooring, the subflooring and what sort of work you have to do um, in order to fill that in because it's an old building and it's cracked. Um, the other things we do is we, we direct order from China. So all our granite, all our faucets, all our light packages, all our flooring, um, what else do we order? All our doorknobs, um, we all buy that directly from China and we have wow. a warehouse in Dallas that we can pull, pull it across. And so, I can get my cost of materials right down. So I know I, I spend 45 cents a square foot on my, my vinyl plank um, and, and it cost me $1.15 to install it. So I just know what it costs me on, and I need to know that in order to make the right investment decision. So, you know, I can maybe go up a bit, a bit better quality on my gold. So I might do 75 cents a square foot on the product, but it's still only going to cost me $1.15 to install it, right? So there's just different things between the packages that you know you can yeah. turn, the, turn the needle a little bit more. And for example, on our granite, we can, we can have installed granite for seven, uh, sorry, materials about seven to eight bucks a square foot on the granite pre-cut. Installation's another probably four or five bucks. So I'm all in for about $12 a square foot. And that, so that's probably about five to $600 a unit. 
resurfacing a, 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 a countertop can cost you three or 400 bucks. And right. that might happen every single time you turn yeah, every it turnover. Right? Yeah. So you expending that a little bit more on the front end um, means that your longevity, that that's going to last you four, five, six turns years down the line until you need to sort of change it up because it is a stone rather than um, just paint. That's a lot, of, your, a lot of great advice. <laughs> you buy your granite from overseas and then you fabricate it once it gets here? Uh, no, it comes pre-cut. The only thing that doesn't come pre-cut is the holes for the sink because that, that can crack uh, in transit. So the only thing they cut in, in, on site is, uh, is the holes for the sinks. So you give them the layouts for God. They, That's they pretty come, cool. They can, well, see, and here's the other thing. Like we only order probably – we do shipping containers full, right? So we don't, we don't over-order. We, we'll probably – I think we get about 30 to 40 units in one container. So we'll just do that, right? And that will take yeah. us six months. And then yeah. we'll also figure out over that six months what's the issue. What, we, we, we would have gone through every unit type, but, you know, these old assets, you, you know, there's that one unit that doesn't have that, you know, knee right. wall, you know. So, okay, yeah. we've got to change it for next time. Like we had an issue on, on site the other day. There was a, a, a right-hand L-shaped uh, countertop and there's a, there's a left-hand uh, granite, granite countertop. And we only had bought the right-hand stuff. So we had to cut it and then change it. And, and they just did it in the field. I didn't even notice it when I went to site. But again, when we order the next round, we've got to remember, we've got to order a bit of both. So we can, mm. you know, and, and you don't know exactly what unit's going to come available. So you're sort of predicting. Um, uh, but it is also something you have to grasp and make sure you've got your systems down pat. And we use some very good uh, sourcing guys from China who, who, who really are, are on top of that type of stuff. That's awesome. That's what cool. do you use to manage your contractors who are doing these outfits or the on-site guys doing it? So, so the big things that I, I like to do, two things from, from a management point of view is um, I, I've got a spreadsheet and I've developed it over the, the, the deals. So just to rewind, we use one or two GCs, one more than the other. Um, and he's been the best thing that's ever come into our organization. Like he's third, still third party, but we have developed you know, that dollar's 15 a square foot in terms of, yeah. you know, I negotiated that with him until like, hey, we've given you all this work. I need a set price, right? So he will, he will come on to every single site and he will walk and do a couple of units and we'll have a rough sort of cost, cost for paint, cost for um, replacing the flooring, cost for installing the ground, cost for framing the mirrors, all that type of stuff. I've got a rough, I know in the, my mind what it cost me because I've done so many jobs with him. It might fluctuate or come down a little bit depending on the, the you know, how good's the subflooring, how good's the tub surrounds. You know, all these little things can add, add dollars to it. Um, but overall, I get a, we, we set a price for every single unit type, whether it be bronze, silver, gold on every single deal. And that will happen over the first three to four months of those first couple of turns. But going into it, we have a rough, you know, okay, this is yeah. going to cost me, 3500 bucks this is going to cost me 6500 this is going to cost me 8500 you know what i mean so yeah 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 yeah, yeah that that's key is is getting a, almost like a term sheet with your contractors so you know we call it, every we, single we, we, thing we, what it's going to cost we, we call it a chinese menu <laughs> so yeah we, we, you know so he will <laughs> the he, number <laughs> well, he, he just he just knows like if we've got you know some subflooring issues it's going to cost me 25 cents a square foot to square to fix it up right i'm right, not going right. to i'm not going to nickel and dime if he, it only really costs him 15 but i've got to a point where i'm happy with 25 cents a square foot so i'm not going to beat him up over it you know what i mean so yeah yeah maybe now's a good time to kind of transition into like what 
what kind of investors like i think folks might like even myself might be interested in investing with you can you kind of walk us through like um yeah. what 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 kind of increments of investments you're looking for and and you, yes. you kind of started to walk us through the 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 different shares so yeah so there's class a and class b which i said and, and the class a does have a higher minimum investment of of 75 or a hundred thousand dollars depending on because we don't, we don't just want everyone to fill into class a there's only 25 percent of it right and, right. and, and the reason we do that is because you take 25% of equity away from the, the back-end profits, that class B IRR actually goes up, right? Just from a, if you've got 100% of the equity sharing in all the profits, well, the IRR goes down. If you've got 75% of the equity, you know, taking all the profits, the IRR goes up, right? Does that make sense? Right, um, right. But then the cash flow on the, fr on the front end, you can pay that 10% pref because if you have, call it a um, million dollars of equity, right? And to 25% of that is $250,000, 10 10% prep is only 25 grand uh, a year, right? So on, call it a million dollars of equity, it's probably, you know, at one quarter of the purchase price, your $4 million deal, I think you can make $25,000 a year. You know what I mean? In cash flow. So it just, it helps the, from a numbers point of view, tick those boxes for those investors who want the cash flow or who, those who want the equity multiple. Uh, in terms of the investor themselves, we are looking for only accredited investors only. Um, we've transitioned away from, from allowing um, non-accredited investors. We do 506B for Bravo. Um, so we've got to get to know you, you know, say good day. Let's, let's, let's jump on the email list. Um, and then from there, just, you know, uh, seeing what opportunities. And, and we're, we're a company that we don't, we don't have the goal to be 20,000 units. We, we want to get to four to 5,000 units, be very sustainable, um, doing a, a deal a quarter. Um, because we are also very focused on having, uh, one, a sustainable business, but two, not getting too far out of our skis and having a lot of overhead. You know, right now it's myself, Andrew, we've got an executive assistant. We've got a couple of part-time um, underwriters. We're about to bring on a full-time asset manager and an associate. Um, we'll probably bring on a couple of, um, uh, we'll probably bring on a couple of more full-time analysts in the future as we go and scale. Um, but we do that to keep a low overhead, to keep a life by design because we, we, we got into this business to do that and have you know, a life for ourselves and, and our family. Um, and so we, we really resonate with that and we hope our investors resonate with that. So we are very much on top of our stuff, but we're not also going to go out and try and get 20,000 units and be overwhelmed really quickly. We, do, we want that sustainable. And then thus it backs us into we only sort of do a deal a quarter. So we only want to see the best deals in the quarter. Like last year, we only did one deal. Um, so you know, that's, it's all about that sustainable growth over the long term. Um, so investors can um, get, get really good returns. And we're, and we're finding the best deals in the market because getting a deal a quarter, you're probably looking at 30, 40, 50, 60 deals to get to that sort of, um, yeah. that, those sort of numbers. So, yeah. You mentioned that um, it's really important that you have like life by design. Are you ever going to consider bringing property management in-house or are you always going to use a third party? No, that's very good. We, you know, it's, it's my baby to, to go and build if, if I want to go do that. But it's sort of, yeah. we, we're now having, you know, we've got to 2,000 units today with friends, family, syndication route. We will continue doing syndication, but we're also now starting to attract private equity. And private equity is starting to say to us, when are you bringing property management in-house? And, and through the guys that we know, the Frank Roslers of the worlds, um, the, the Ashcrofts of the worlds, you know, quizzing those blokes and saying, when do you bring it in-house? And everyone seems to say between three and a half to 4,000 units seems to be the sweet spot. Mm. And, and for us, it's like, you know, that's what we're, we're steering towards. We know that it becomes more efficient, um, but you've got to have that scale 
to attract good talent. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. If you've got a thousand units, you're not going to get the best property managers. You're not going to get the best regional managers. So making sure you have that scale. And and there's two ways of, you know, I've thought about doing it. It's one way. You go purchase a property management company, like a smaller one, and grow it. So you've got the systems in place. Or... Or you go and approach one of your really gun regionals who has that entrepreneurial sort of tick and say, hey, you're the throat to choke. You're going to come in and run this. You're going to come and set up all the systems and, and we're going to be in the background. Um, so we think we're going to go with the latter because I don't know how many property management companies are for sale today, but also we're not at that scale yet. We, have, we need probably to add another 1,000 to 1,500 units and we will get there. Um, but we, you know that will be the next sort of big hurdle. I think the next real big hurdle for us is, and if just low-hanging fruit, is as much as I love my GC, is you know replacing him, you know, and, and doing it in-house. So having, you know, I'll go get my license. I'll have, and really, it's just getting a good property manager. Sorry, getting a good project manager who's had experience in the multifamily space, who's yep. got a good black book of all the vendors um, yep. that he can go call, and and we just, you know, there's two of us can just go property manager, uh, sorry, project manager, and GC that because that's really all a GC does. He, he, uh, he, he still third parties, everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, sorry, I still remember today, the first time I went on site on one of my first deals and I walk around the site and there's these, there's these guys doing the siding and uh, I see them wearing these white shirts and they're you know, newly creased and they got the, the, the company's <laughs> name of, of the GC. And I was like, excuse me, I was like, bullshit, that's, they're not, they're not part of your company. You're like, they're just, there's some other random painters or siding, siding people that you've got. And, uh, but it was, it was funny that I was like, I can see that these are clearly new shirts and you're just throwing them around the site. They're like, oh yeah, it's, it's THD construction. Like, no, it's not, mate, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are in a good spot where, I mean, you're, like you said, an inch wide, a mile deep. You've got a very high density where you're going to have advantages to bring stuff in-house. Whereas if you're spread out all across Texas, it'd be a lot harder to bring property management in-house. Or, or Texas or all the country, you know? And, and, yeah. and we, we will go to another market when our private equity or when our big LP and check investors say, hey, we really want to go to X or we really want to go to Y. And so for right now, you know, there's, a, there's over 30,000 units or 40,000 units in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. We own 2,000. So there's, there's plenty of stuff to go around just in Austin, right? You just, yeah. just literally just talking. And, and there's all the new stuff that's coming online with the growth. So I think, you know, we're going to easily hit between 50 and 70,000 units within the next two years. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. But, uh, we, I'm kind of backtracking, but we didn't really talk about it. Um, you said currently you're just kind of keeping things as they are, like due to COVID. Are you having any challenges um, from that with rent collections or anything down there? Oh, look, people are saying the, hot, the, hot, the, 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 the news articles are, we're 95% collected and multifamily is great. And it is great. But it depends. Each asset has its own challenges, right? right? And the big thing that I've learned from this COVID time is that we are in the business of, of, of people, right? We provide, we don't have our tenants, we don't have income. And so making sure getting in front of that early on, making sure that there's a lot of fear in the market, there's a lot of, you know, people were scared in the beginning, getting in front of it and saying, hey, we're not the big bad landlords, we want to work with you. This is a global pandemic. You, you didn't lose your job because you're incompetent. You lost your job because your employer couldn't afford to keep you on, right? We couldn't, you know, you're in the service industry or something. So we've got some assets that quarter over quarter, they've actually grown in revenue. We've got yeah. other assets, which are a little bit more blue collar that have struggled a little bit more. We're just, when I say struggled, it's mean we just had a lot more turnover. You know, people dropping keys, skipping, bad debt. And, you know, overall, we're collecting well above 95%, but 
you know, when you're, when, when you've got people moving out and you're, you know, back in April and May in the thick of it, when leasing centers weren't open, we weren't having the traffic coming through the door to replace those sort of 10 or 15 people that have moved out that month. So right. that was, that's been the hardest thing. And the psyche of consumers spending and all that sort of stuff is going to be, it plays a part of it, right? People are very going to be very conscious of what they're going to spend. And that's why we aren't doing any more renovations on across the portfolio this year, because we don't think people are going to want to spend that extra 150 bucks a, a month on a turned unit. So we're just going to pause for right now and pick it up in 2020. Um, we are seeing some really weird stuff, but like one of our assets we purchased in March, closest one to downtown Austin in like class A area, you know, very hip, very um, millennial focused tech, tech guys. It's actually got the most concessions right now because we're right next to some brand new con- construction. The brand right. new stuff's trying to lease up and they're leasing up at given four, six weeks away, but they're at sort of a $2 a square foot. We're at a dollar, you know, 30 a square foot. But because we've, from an optics point of view, we have to match their concessions. So we've, we're, we're forced to give away months free. That's, we, that's the most concessions we've ever given away, right? Even in the San Antonio stuff, we're not giving that much away. So just different, it's, it's where you are in your, in your business plan because part of the business plan of every deal is to come in and shift the demographic. You know, you want to increase the average household income. And, and, and some of our assets we purchased last year and we're only sort of halfway through that shift. And thus, we've, got, we've seen more of those blue collar renters struggling, you know, not from any fault of their own, but just struggling in this COVID time. And that's what has sort of, you know, when I say struggle, it means that that's what's been the biggest thing we've seen on a granular basis from deal to deal. Yeah, that, that one point that you talked about with the concessions on the newer units coming online, I don't know where this conversation will go, but it's always fascinated me where, uh, where somebody's, somebody's taking a hit at the end of the day. Like, you know, you're bringing something online, you know, you've, you've obviously got different financing than, than I've got, but, um, you're definitely not hitting, you know, what you, what you charted when you, when you put this thing online to build it. So like somebody's getting pinched at the end, but it's not enough to like where the thing's going to yeah. default apparently. So it's well, it always yeah, to that point, you know, for any new build, if you're not underwriting to at least a month's concession on the, on the lease up. Yeah. You, I don't care where you are. I've, got, I've, I've done lease ups here in LA. I've done lease ups in New York. Everyone, brand new build, they, everyone expects Lisa, uh, a concession. So, you know, if you're not underwriting for that, you just think you're going to give it, you know, people who's going to walk in the door and pay anything that you're wrong. And so thus, when the other, the other assets in, the, in, the, in the, the sub-market, which aren't brand new, but for, again, from an optics point of view, you're saying, oh, this brand new building is giving away four weeks or six weeks free. Why aren't you doing that, Mr. 1980s properties? Like, well, because... We're also not trying to get two dollars a square foot rent. We're we're here at a thousand dollars for one bedroom, but and you're not at fifty percent arc, right? Well, that's that's right. But also, you know, your it's it's the optics. It's the it's right. well, what am I getting on the front end? And, and renters look at two things: concessions and what's the cost of my entire you know check that I'm going to write to you. So right. all that it all it all it all plays into it. It's all an optics thing. And you know, sitting down and talking to someone, oh, these are the concessions here. The renter doesn't care about that. It's like, give me a place to bloody rent and it's got to be affordable. You know, or it's affordable within, you know, whatever that word affordable means for, for the individual res- resident. So, yeah. When they're underwriting that new asset that they're building, like when, what's their time frame for when they get to 95% occupancy or, or whatnot? Depends. So, we're, we're, we've got, we're actually going to take over a new deal, that Opportunity Zone deal. It's currently in construction right now. 
and we're taking it over at the end of the year and we'll be in lease up uh, for pretty much all of 2021. And we've underwritten for a, um, a 15 month lease up. And that means we're going to be probably about 15 to 20 leases per month. Now, on okay. if you, you, so you've got to back into having a very good property manager team that, that will be able to give you data of in a good time pre-COVID, what was the lease, leasing velocity? And I know in just in the areas of where we're buying that it's probably between 30 and 40 leases a month in pre-COVID. Now they're seeing in the heart of COVID, in the heart of summer, between 15 and 25 leases. So if you're underwriting to what it is today, that, and that then backs into a number of how long it's going to take to, to lease up. And right. remember, there's a lease up and there's a stabilised number, right? So stabilised meaning your income equals your, your expenses, right? Your, right. Sorry, sorry, your NOI equals your debt. So that's really where your break even is at. That take, can take between as quick as six months, as long as 12 months, and then to get to cash flow and stabilisation, you know, that could take another six months on top of that. So as long as your assumptions are there and they're, they're there correctly, don't get me wrong, COVID's going to have an impact on everyone's IRR across the board. I don't care where, what deal you're in and I don't care what MSA you're in. It, it, they will have a ding to your IRR in whenever you sell the asset. This has been a chink in the armour, but it's also been a massive global pandemic. Uh, and this is not just affecting the United States, it's affecting the entire world. But back right. to your, your new construction is that, yes, part of the risk of buying any new deal and leasing up is the fact that it may take longer now post-COVID and that's the biggest thing. No one has a clue about what's going to happen. You know, the unemployment rate. Um, and, and the interesting thing for me, being a foreigner, is like how is individual MSAs going to come out of the gate, you know, get back to soccer events or football, you know, sporting events or, 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 or cinemas or concerts, and each individual MSA is going to come out of the gate fast or slow or and, and that, consumer, that, that confidence in the local market will also impact renters' decisions. And that, and that, psych, that psychology is really important now more than ever when you're thinking about leasing up. So, you know, or, or you're thinking about giving concessions or you're thinking about turning units or you're thinking about renovating the exterior of the property. That all adds into it. So, yeah, a lot, a lot right. there. <laughs> no, that's great info. I, I, I'm glad we got into that. So, um, and I know, I know your time is precious. So we're kind of hitting that, that, that threshold. Jim, do you want to uh, finish us up? Yeah, Reed, uh, would you mind giving our audience an idea of where to find you, whether it's on the Wildhorn Capital side, your books, podcast, or yeah, so um, from, uh, you know, learning how to go to multifamily? Sure. Yeah. So from the more educational side, just the, you know, the books and the podcast, and you can go to reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. Um, and you can find the books, the blog, the everything there the podcast. If you want to more, find more, more about like the business side of it, go to wildhorncap, so cap.com. And that's where you see, my, you know, obviously Wildhorn, our, our portfolio, um, where we're investing our mission statements, you know, our invest, investment thesis, all that sort of good stuff. And, uh, and then finally, if anyone is coming through LA and they're looking to meet up for a beer or getting back on a flight again, uh, just hit me up at info at and we can always meet up and uh, talk shop. Yeah. That's cool. I, uh, I got one last uh, question, maybe request. It's kind of corny, but I love talking to you Aussies. You guys are awesome. And I, <laughs> y- you said you're a footballer, so I didn't know. Do you have like a, a chant or something you can leave us with? Or Oh, well, so, 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 there's, 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 the, there's the classic one, right? The, uh, the right. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. There's that one. Right? Everyone knows that. Um, 
in terms of, I'm, I'm a massive rugby fan, like huge. I was at Japan last year for the Rugby World Cup. Um, so I'm big into rugby and, uh, and I played here. But yeah, in terms of football or, or soccer, I, I don't follow it as much. Um, but the, I, I don't, besides the Aussie, 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 oi, 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 I don't know any really other chance. And, you know, not, not that are not PG, right? right so. uh, <laughs> <laughs> over beers. <laughs> over beer, exactly, yeah. over beers, over beers. So, yeah. well, this has been most enjoyable. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, boys, it's been incredible. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity and hopefully we catch up next time. Absolutely. Yes, Thank sir. you, Reed. See you, man. See you, boys. See ya. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.